All right, everybody. Coming from your favorite windowless closet in the southern Utah desert, I, Stephen Gregory, and the Mountain Bureau bring you the Peak Season Podcast. What's happening, team? It's uh, Stefan here, and you know, a little tired. That was a busy spring. I, I don't know about y'all, but we had a super busy one. Uh, I came up to the Northwest, what I do, I instructed some rocks climbing uh, for the SPI program there in Smith Rock. The Mountain Bureau climbed all the mountains and skied all the mountains, and we're now kind of shifting gears into summer season, which I always look forward to. I get to head north be on some snow, see water everywhere, hang out with good people, eat cookies and coffee. Mmm, cookies and coffee. I digress. Uh, Briefly, for those that haven't listened to the show before, the Peak Season Podcast is brought to you by the Mountain Bureau. And the Mountain Bureau is a craft mountain guiding service rooted in the North Cascades. We are literally a dedicated crew of mountain professionals, mountain lovers, We just spend so much time in the mountains and we want to share that information with you so you can learn faster, have a better time, and ultimately a safer experience out there. So reach out. Uh, We just like talking mountains too. Uh, If you got a goal in the North Cascades or abroad, we can help you out. Uh, The podcast, on the other hand, is here to showcase people that live, work, play, or all in mountains or mountain-adjacent activities like ice climbing, rock climbing, backcountry skiing, trying to keep it seasonally relevant, though, as you've probably already experienced, you see us in the field when it's seasonally relevant because we're out there working. Uh, We're going to do a little better in the future, getting this thing planned out so we can just push go and have episodes for you when the season's here. So thanks for bearing with us. It's been a really cool project so far, and I Look forward to sharing today's episode with you with Derek De Bruin. Derek is an understated critical thinker, passionate climber, and advocate for quality and integrity in our world of climbing culture and education. Uh, I can't say enough. Derek's expertise and his unrelenting attention to detail combined with his ability to synthesize information and translate it to all of us who utilize a rope in mountain environments uh, truly make Derek a gem and an incredible resource to the climbing community. Uh, I reached out to Derek, gosh, in 2019 to shadow an SPI program he was putting on, largely because of a lot of the papers and research I had seen him doing. And uh, he also loves punk rock, so it's an easy one for me to go be like, yep, that guy, I think I'll get along there. Derek's replication studies are something he's become known for, um, particularly regarding the fixed point belay, quad anchor, and rappel backups. They've definitely slowly become to popularize, at least in the US, these techniques. And I love Derek because he doesn't settle for like a half-assed answer, nor will he give you a half-assed response on anything, uh, as you see in this this episode. There's a lot more to talk about Derek here, but I'll let him do a lot of the talking and you can come to your own conclusions on it. I'll talk to you guys in the middle like I usually do. And thanks for tuning in, y'all. We'll see you this summer.
from your years of instructing, what have you seen as the biggest change in people coming to you receiving instruction now versus 10 years ago, let's say? Um, I think, I mean, I think frankly, it's that, so, so I guess with, with gyms and with the sort of mainstreamification of climbing, uh, there's just so many more climbers, right? Um, and so I think the biggest change really is that formal instruction is more acceptable, right? Like there was a time when, you know, if you hired a guide, that was, uh, I mean, like people, you know, people talked about guides with, with, with in the pejorative sense, um, and people talked about their clients in like the even more pejorative sense. Like it was like the one, the one way you could relate to the guide was that like you both thought the client was just like some ninny who couldn't like go climbing on their own. Um, and which I never really ascribed to that because that seems like a really shitty way to do business. Um, or, or to just be a person, you know, like, like maybe we don't, maybe we don't need to belittle everyone all the time. Um, but you know, it is what it is, I guess. Um, that was just sort of the way, th- I mean, that was, I mean, I, there are plenty of folks who told me, you know, like the client's trying to kill you. That's all they're good for. Um, you know, when you're going to work, you're just free soloing with a rope on, um, all these sorts of things. Um, and, and nowadays people like recommend professional instruction, like, Hey, you should go hire a guide. Um, you should go take this clinic. You should like, you know, there's this online class you should go check out. Like, um, and I think, I think that is a big, a big change, uh, that, that for the better. Um, and I think that is, and that sort of, that sort of like mainstream acceptance, I think also has done great things for, uh, for bringing maybe access issues to light. Even if we don't always manage them well, people understand that like there's enough folks now. We need to act like we're a real user group and not just some pile of fringe people doing our own thing and like you know ducking the rangers in Camp Four. Um, and so I think there's that the both of those things have largely been positive. Um, I mean, there's you know there's 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 downsides to everything and there's certainly hiccups that come with growth for sure. Um, but I think. The, Right now, I think those are probably the two sort of like those are like the biggest things I've seen in the last last several years. Yeah, you know, I'd piggyback with that and say there's a greater awareness that you can instruct climbing and guide climbing for a living. Uh, I've been going through a credentialing process for climbing instruction for a number of years at this point, and I feel like only in the last five have people gone like, "Oh, you're a such and such guide," and I'm kind of like, "Yeah, I've been like one of those for a while, and now it matters." <laughs> but pe- people know that this is like a job. I mean, I remember my first, uh, very early in my, my outdoor instructional and guiding career, um, you know, one, someone, I, I was working some group booking with like Boy Scouts or whatever, you know, um, and so one of the, like this, we're, we're, you know, managing all the, all the, all the youths and then, you know, there's a few adults around and one of them asked me like, oh, so what are you, what are you, what are you going to do when summer's over? Like, what, you going back to school or whatever? It was like, well, this is, no, I'm, I'm going to. I'm gonna keep doing my job. We actually we guide in the fall. Do you want to go rock climbing in the fall? Like I've got some availability in September. It's a really good time, <laughs> you know. Like, like no. Like this is this is like this is the plan, man. Like, like I'm 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 a climbing guide, climbing instructor. I, I teach you how to do the things. Like, pay me for that, and then then we go to do the things. <laughs> um, I was like, you know, like, uh, and that's that's definitely a big shift from like you know, the, from from this thing obviously this is just a thing you're doing for the summer which i mean was a reasonable question i mean early in my career like i'm i'm pretty young and fresh faced and so like maybe maybe this is what just what i'm doing you know like the same way that someone goes and works at summer camp or whatever but um but 
it, but just the same. Like, you know, you, you have to go from like, no, it's just a thing you do for the summer to like, no, it's a thing I do all the time. Like, this is my job. Yeah, not only is it my job, it's like I, I'm a professional. This is what I aspire to be really, really good at, uh, a master, if you will, if we were in another trade. And, and clearly you've aspired to do that, and, and I feel like accomplished that uh, by doing a bunch of research and seemingly filling gaps in maybe what you were seeing in terms of uh, education and application to things in the U.S. Or I, I'm curious, for the research papers, papers you've done on fixed-point belaying, um, quad anchors, what was the impetus for that? What made you want to provide that research to everybody oh geez um i I mean for me like i was just trying to answer questions um right so like the first step of research is just like figuring out what's already out there and reading it right um like it's you you know if you go if you go read any any uh any technical paper or academic paper or like a journal article like the first the first thing is the abstract where we summarize what we did so that you don't have to actually read this thing because it's 30 pages um and then there's like the introduction where you have to summarize all of human knowledge about this topic until you get to like why it's interesting for what you just did right uh so you know frankly like uh i you know, I mean, I, I probably started reading technical papers in 2008 or 2009. Um, you know, at that point, I was working on a, a computer science degree. Like I was, you know, I was an undergrad, and like you just read things about research, right? So like I would read an article about like uh, internetworked networks, and then I would read a paper on, uh, oh geez, what's the what's the one? There's like a Mark Beverly paper about like your your gear pulling and like the effect that has on subsequent forces on the lower pieces or whatever, but you know, like this this sort of thing, um, just sort of tooling around the internet. And then I came across this thing on belaying a, a lead climber off the anchor, right? Like at that point, I, I knew knew plenty about belaying followers off the anchor, but belaying a lead climber was, very, was a very novel idea in the States at least. Um, but it had been around and tested at that point for about 10 years in Italy, um, and it spread to, to German, the German-speaking Alps as well a little bit. Um, and so I just read a lot of stuff, right? And so initially, I didn't hadn't really planned to do any of my own research, mostly because I didn't have access to the tools to do it anyway. Uh, but I started having these conversations with folks and trying to just like spread these ideas, and people were quite resistant to this. Um, and, and, and I mean, rightfully so, like, right? Like, in some ways, climbing is very conservative in the sense that, like, you just don't go out there and do random stuff, new things, willy-nilly, because, like, if it's been working for a while, then you don't want to, if it's not broke, you don't want to fix it because it could get you killed if you fix it wrong, right? So there's definitely, so there's there's some real like there's a reason to to be skeptical of these things. Um, but I was like, well, I'm reading all these papers and like, and I see the data and I'm like, no, that seems pretty convincing. Like it seems like they do this in other countries. Um, and so that's when I started realizing that the only way to make this happen was if I put this stuff in English, because um, these papers, uh, there's some papers in English, but I mean, you know, the, the 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 climbing culture, the alpine culture in Europe is far stronger than what we have in the states. You know, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, um, and so. You know, I was basically, you know, I took a semester of German in college. I did a year of Spanish in high school. I took French for three years in high school. Uh, my grand, my, my grandmother spoke like seven languages. Um, so that was, yeah, it was really interesting exposure because she, well, I mean, this is a huge tangent, but like um, when she when she spoke English, right? She spoke, her English was probably 70 or 80% English and then like 20% other languages mixed in. Um, like if she just didn't know the word in English, she like she didn't know how to say the word with. 
So she just said mit, which is German. It means the same thing. It means with, right? And she never said but. She said may, because in French, you know, may is but. Um, and so, you know, like, uh, we never ate meat at my grandmother's house. We had miasa, um, which is Russian, because uh, she's from Ukraine. Um, anyway, it's the whole thing. So I was just had a lot of language exposure, and so I was like, well, I took these random language classes, and you know, all these papers, like, you know, the, the leading technical papers are usually in German or Italian, sometimes in French, occasionally in Spanish, and then English is, like, low down the list. So I'm reading all this stuff and, like, you know, like, just, like, sort of, like, reading with my limited knowledge and Google translating and, like, I've, I'm learning all the climbing-specific words and whatever, and I'm like, okay, I can, I, but I can read a data set and look at diagrams and stuff and figure what, you know, like, you can infer a lot from that. Um, and so I, I was fairly compelled, but other folks weren't. Um, so Frank, like most of the research I've done is just replication studies. Like, I mean, I may, I may tweak things a little bit and do small modifications because I think it makes them more realistic. Um, because once you, once you sort of do baseline testing, you know, where you're not necessarily going for realism, you're just going for proof of concept and understand the forces involved. Well, then you sort of get them more, you sort of trend towards more realism and that becomes more compelling to your, your average climber. Does that make sense? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, most of the work I've done is just been replicating stuff that data data we already have um and, and sort of and, and replication studies are, are still really important to the scientific process right like you want to make sure it wasn't just a one-off and like you're just like it wasn't just the result of stochastic noise um but so then i make a replication study i put it out in english and people are like oh my gosh this is great we now have the data for this i'm like we've you you've had the data i mean man fixed point blank was crazy you know like i put out like a very mediocre fixed point paper in 2018 i think and it's like y'all that's there's there's way more data on this and it's been out for 20 years like <laughs> um and it's only it's only because it's now in english that it, like it's accessible to an english-speaking audience and um and so it's yeah i guess for me a lot of it's just been like hey i think the euros maybe onto something here they have some good ideas that we could adopt uh but we just need to put it in a language that people can like literally can read that literally makes really good sense uh is there anything new that you're working on uh, research-wise that you'll be putting out in the future? Um, my, yeah, I mean, I certainly have some research ideas for the future, uh, but I don't have any immediate plans to pursue those. Usually what happens is sometime in May, uh, the spring semester finishes at the university. I have more time in the summer. I don't teach as much. Um, and I like, you know, so I do a little more guiding in the summer and somewhere in that process, I'm like, I should do another, I, I want to look into this. And then I just like sort of, you know, Get, get the schedule lined up for a you know, month or two out, and then I go look into the thing and do this do little study or whatever. So I'm sure something will come up, but um, I, on the technical side of things, I don't have at the moment any really pressing questions I want to answer personally. Like, the, I think there are lots of questions that come up frequently that ha are, that we have enough data on to like, for me to feel pretty confident about. Um, so in that sense, like, Nah, I'm, I'm I'm much more concerned at this point about the human factor um, in the in the system, um, because if you look at what causes a climbing accident, uh, it's rarely the technical system. I mean, sometimes it is uh, for sure. Like people rip anchors out of the wall, it does happen. Um, I mean, that's like a really common kind of argument. It's like, why would you even bother fixed point blind? This is stupid. Anchors don't fail, and you're like, the failure rate for anchors in Yosemite is like one catastrophic anchor failure every five years or so, and that's in just Yosemite. Um, you know, so, so you're like, I mean, it happens, right? Like, and people people belay in weird ways that don't serve them, and like you know, ropes get cut. Um, like there's there's still some questions out there and some stuff to fix, but a lot of it's like, I feel like pretty well developed. Um, it's more the fact that folks are getting lowered off the end of their rope, you know? Um, 
Yeah, and, so are you saying skills are lacking in the foundational levels? Yeah, but I mean, like, the, uh, you know, Lynn Hill failed to tie her knot and fell off the top of the climb, right? John Long did the same thing a few years ago at the gym. Alex Honnold got lowered off the end of a rope, right? So, and I don't think those climbers are foundational climbers, right? Um, so th that's the thing. It's like, oh, it's like that's a new mistake, and it's like, no, that's an everyone mistake. Um, and so I, I'm much more, I'm much more concerned about the interplay uh, with the human factor and risk management and how it relates to that technical system. So when I think about technical research right now, I'm, I'm I, I'm trying to formulate what the questions might be for a proper study, but my certainly my interest is in, in the ways in which we interact with our technical systems and actually designing systems like from a system engineering perspective that achieves the goal of uh, keeping keeping the, the fallible human operators safer, right? Um, this is this is why, for example, we lower off the anchor now. We don't repel off the anchor in single pitch climbing, right? Because like. That was a, a big source of accidents, um, and so we want to stop. You want to, if you want to stop that accident from happening, the common argument is like personal responsibility. Like you should know what you're doing, and like sure, you should know what you're doing. But also, people wreck their car. It's not like you know, like they can. You could drive thousands of miles totally fine without an accident, and then it still happens, right? Like our, and you can you can reduce the fatal accidents on the roadways by changing the design of the road system. Um, and in Europe, they do this a lot. Uh, and in the U.S., we just don't tend to take that approach. Um, but the same thing applies to climbing. If you want to fix the problem of people failing at anchor cleaning and messing up the changeover and, and dirting themselves, uh, we'll change the system. Um, I have a you know former client, uh, student, friend who died doing an anchor changeover back in 2014. Um, and man, that, that hits hard. That sucks. Um, and shortly after that, uh, my friend Ron Funderburg, who was the education director of the American Alpine Club for a while, uh, we chatted about this. I'm like, what's the first thing to fix? You know, like if you could, if you like have the, the voice of the American Alpine Club to speak to all climbers in the country, well, the first thing to do is make sure everyone knows how to belay. And the second thing to do is make sure everyone's lowering off the anchor um, instead of changing over to repel or having these, these miscommunications, these errors. So I, a lot of what I think about these days is not so much the technical system, it's how to make the technical system as simple as possible so that it's harder to screw up and mitigate the human factor. Wow, that's awesome. Do you find when you teach this there are certain topics that, that don't stick despite your best efforts? Um, I mean, I think for stuff that doesn't stick, uh, in some ways it's just the I mean that that itself is a human factor. Like it's it's easy to think that's not going to happen to you, because um, it hasn't happened to you yet. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, then you get to continue in this with this this idea that it won't happen to you, which is a helpful coping mechanism for the world, right? You can't go around thinking that every negative thing is going to befall you. Uh, otherwise, you'd be a ball of anxiety all the time, and you wouldn't be able to do anything. But you do also like if you want to have a long and happy life, you know, like uh, then. Um, it would behoove you to pay attention to things that might actually really happen to you. Um, and so in some ways, uh, there it's that same, like if it's not broke, don't fix it mentality, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like we don't adopt stuff too quickly because, you know, if you change a thing, we could that, that could actually cause negative externalities that we haven't figured out yet. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if I can talk you through like the logic of like why this is the better way to go, you can just dismiss it and be like, no, 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 personal responsibility. I just keep my hand on the brake. I don't need to back myself up when I repel. 
you know? Um, and so I think sometimes that's a, that's a hard one to make stick because I, for me, it's really salient. You know, I have a friend, like they have this person who was killed. Um, and then, you know, I've got, I've lost many other friends in the mountains and I've had, you know, three students here at the university who've had various accidents. You know, one of them is walking paraplegia now. Um, so it's really cool to get into adaptive climbing, which is great, but like, it'd be even cooler if the climbing accident wasn't the reason for that. Um, you know, and so like, uh, and, and I mean, I'm a search and rescue team, like, you know, like I go on calls, I've, I've recovered a lot of bodies from a lot of places in the hills, you know? Um, so it's, for me, it's really salient. Um, cause I, I see the aftermath of all this stuff and I've, you know, I have a conversation probably once a year with someone who like is grieving their, their friend who died climbing somehow. Um, and if you're coming to me for instruction, most of the time, not always, but most of the time you're, you know, a beginner to intermediate level climber earlier in your career. And so you may just not have those experiences yet. Um, and even if you've, and, and a lot of times, you know, you're, they're younger folks too. And so the way we have divorced death from the rest of society in our culture, um, you, they might like have literally never had, had anyone die in their life, like at all, you know, like grandma hasn't died yet sort of thing. Um, and so it's really this abstraction where it's like, it just does not hit home for folks that like, this is a super cool, awesome activity. You can learn lots of things and grow as a person and whatever, but it'll also, it can, it can get you killed. And if you care about that, then you may want to adjust what you're doing. Um, and I feel that's, to me, I, I struggle with that a lot where there's like, I see a competence, confidence mismatch in folks that I'm instructing and I don't know how to rectify it. Yeah. Do you feel like that's further complicated by the odds alone of the more that you're out there, the more likely this is to happen? So kind of the opposite side of 10,000 hours of doing something, you become a master, it's 10,000 hours you are going to get in an accident? Um, I mean, it, it, well, it comes down to the problem that like people are bad in numbers. That's very polite. Right. Like, like, you, like, well, me. okay. So like, um, cause on the one hand I could, I could easily equip at you and just say like, sure. For every Lynn Hill or John Long or Alex Honnold accident, there's a thousand other people who've been climbing the same number of hours and haven't had an accident yet. Right. Um, but because, but it's, it's about probabilities, right? Things, things what, where chance is involved. And we're, we're extra bad at numbers where probabilities are concerned and things are not certain. Um, so yes, like the longer you do the thing, the greater your exposure should be, right? Um, if, with, with greater exposure comes higher probability of an accident because of the simple sort of additive things, right? But if you make conservative decisions, um, repeatedly and make, and make those intentional, like you, you select intelligent defaults as your intentional habit, um, then you can reduce the probability and therefore you can accept a longer exposure or greater exposure before you're likely to have an accident. So long as this is all occurring in a less complex environment than the mountains and perhaps a more simple environment like single pitch rock climbing in a popular area with good rock. Um, sure. So, you're, so you're, you're, yeah, you're, I mean, your exposure definitely goes up with, with the environment, right? So like, I mean, you've seen my risk management talk and the single pitch instructor course, right? Like, um, and you know, like, actually, I don't know if I've mentioned environmental entropy in there, right? But like, um, like think of this idea of environmental entropy, right? We're like, like how much of a system is within your control and at the climbing gym, a lot of it's controlled at the single pitch crag less controlled, but still pretty controlled, right? As you move into multi-pitch terrain or tried climbing, whatever, things get even less controlled. And as you continue, like, you know, um, the, the death rate in 
8,000 meter mountaineering um, is pretty damn high. And, and that's actually pretty damn high relative to uh, other human activities, right? Like if you look at uh, the riskiest jobs you can do that we have data on are to be uh, a Sherpa on a 6,000 plus meter peak or to be a space traveler. <laughs> wow. Um, and those are the same order of magnitude of risk. Incredible. That's <laughs> um, crazy. Uh, so that's pretty nuts, right? Yeah. Um, so in that sense, right, the more or the, the less controlled the environment gets, then the greater your exposure. So a way to think about being conservative then is to pick the environmental exposure you have. So in the winter, I don't go ice guiding every day because there's greater exposure in that environment than when I'm also teaching my indoor climbing class in the winter. Uh, those are two vastly different exposures. So if I make more conservative choices, I can do this for longer and have lower risk of an accident. Um, and so that, that logic applies, but you can also look within an environment you can reduce exposure, right? So we talk about this sort of stuff a lot in avalanche world, and we just don't seem to apply it in climbing, right? Like, it seems like the second you put skis on your feet, everyone's like, oh man, human factors, exposure, risk, management, conservative things, margins. But then you're like, oh, you know what? Let's go to the exact same thing in the exact same place, except I'm going to have crampons on, and all of a sudden everyone's like, you know, we should just go for that shit. And like, I, I, like it's like, it baffles me. Um, so if you want to like have a long skiing career, um, as you know, especially in the backcountry, um, well, you could like center punch every slope you ever see on a considerable hazard day. That's a great way to increase your exposure. Or I mean, frankly, like I just don't ski things over 35 degrees when I'm working midwinter. Like, at most of the time, not even over 30, uh, because I can usually deliver the instructional outcomes I'm after, and there's no need to go pursue that greater risk. Because um, it turns out skiing 30 degree powder is usually pretty enjoyable for most people. Um, <laughs> totally. And and then I don't have to worry about avalanche hazards. So like, yes, my exposure is greater because if I pick just the wrong line or just the wrong slope or the wrong part of this bowl or the wrong aspect, like I can screw up, right? Um, but if I'm already saying like I'm going to keep it under 30, then that solves a lot of my problem right off the bat. And I can usually, and as long as I can deliver the outcome that's desired, then why wouldn't I do that? Like any day where like, I don't have to go steep, especially when I'm working, I don't go steep um, because I don't need to. And why would I then? Um, it's not like I get amazing, it's a work day, right? I'm probably not having like my greatest day in the mountains ever when I'm at work, um, right? Because my job at work is to help people either learn a thing or to have them have their greatest day in the mountains. And you know, what ha you, know what, you know what takes a great day in the mountains and makes it a really bad day in the mountains? Getting someone avalanched, getting them killed, dropping them off a cliff. Like, they're going to be pissed about that. So if I'm managing risk for other people, like, I am extra conservative because this is my job, right? Like, you, if you don't know enough to manage the risk on your own, and that's why you hired me, um, I'd be pretty shitty at my job if I was just like, yeah, we're just going to go do things however because you don't know any better and I'll just do what I want. Like, right? So my personal risk tolerance might be really high, but my professional risk tolerance is much lower because I got to go home to my wife and kid at the end of the day, and every one of my clients wants to do the same thing. Um, and so I just, all I got to do is have a good time, deliver the lesson, whatever the goal is. Uh, but that, that's how I reduce my exposure, and so then that helps reduce my chance of an accident. Um, could it still happen? Absolutely, right? Like, like yeah, we're going to have accidents for sure. Um, but you can just because there's a, a likely like there's some there's some inherent risk doesn't mean I can't do everything I in my power to mitigate that risk. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother with risk management at all, 
right? We wouldn't have snow slides. We would just go standard punch every slope. And we wouldn't even know if it was a considerable hazard day because we were just like, ah, oh, screw it. Let's go ski the thing. It looks fun. Right? Like, so if you consider like we came from that to like, oh, hey, ski under 30 degrees and you'll be generally safe. Well, that's, that's a bit of a change. And that got, you know, that didn't get rid of the inherent risk, but man, it managed a whole lot of exposure. Sure. And that's all relative to college programming and mostly intro programs that you're running. And I think that's totally applicable. And I think there are uh, places for steep skiing clinics and getting people into terrain on days that are less obvious of the hazard and uh, objectives with uh, what would be in the eight scale challenging terrain, uh, managing hazard um, as appropriate to the day but not fully avoiding hazard all the time. Um, because as you stated earlier too, we can't just, you know, there's avalanche hazard, so we just don't go out. And then there's how do we manage it appropriately given the conditions. Sometimes it goes so far to the other end of the scale that yeah, totally going out in 30 degree terrain is the way, but other, other times with different demographics and different goals, uh, there are ways to manage that too. All right, team, welcome to Intermission. I'll be your host still, and I'm going to go over a little bit of what the Bureau has going on for the summer, as well as cool ideas and things that I think are awesome in the Cascadian summer. Uh, notably, we've got a Shuxon Reservation August 5th through the 8th on the Fisher Chimneys route, which if you have not done, is like a little slice of the Alps out here. Uh, a little bit more rock climbing, more technical than the Sulfide route, but you kind of get the best of both worlds because you do end on the upper Sulfide. Uh, it's definitely a favorite of mine. Northridge of Baker is all time. It did go out early season last year, clearly due to our mega heat wave but right now is in good snowy condition we'll only be getting icier as we go and we also do private instruction too so if you don't see something on the website that's really tickling your fancy right now head over shoot us an email uh, i'll be based in the metal this year i'm going to throw on a intro to multi-pitch climbing clinic here in early august as well as some private guiding days that are available so do head over if you see something you want and don't have a date for hit us up and we'll get you sorted Otherwise, I'll get you back into the podcast here with Derek. And thanks so much. We'll see you guys up there this summer. To do a bit of a 180, I wanted to ask you about Notch Peak. Uh, I know you spent a bunch of time out there, have a handful of new routes. And uh, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about it. Could you fill in myself and uh, the peak season listeners? Um, yeah, so Notch Peak is in the West Desert, uh, which is, uh, okay, so if you go to the town of Delta, which is like just sort of southwest of the Wasatch, like you head southwest from Provo, and then drive due west on Highway 50, like you're trying to get to Great Basin National Park across the Nevada border, and then stop at the loneliest stretch of road you could be on before you get to Great Basin, and after having, after having left Delta, that's where Notch Peak is. So uh, it's 50 miles in any direction to anything that really resembles civilization. Got it. Middle of nowhere. How long have you been climbing out there? Uh, I think I first started climbing there in like 2015. Um, so I moved to Utah in 2014. And when I lived in North Carolina, I was 40 minutes away from Whiteside Mountain, which is like the third highest thing on the tallest thing on the East Coast, but it's like 900, 950 feet of climbing on that wall. And so uh you know like a nice little 
one it's and it's there's real committing roots and stuff there um it's got kind of a reputation but you know i could leave my front door you know at, i don't know six thirty or 7 in the morning and drive up to whiteside and you know scamper down the gully real quick and like blast up a route and be you know back by 3 p.m. with my feet up on the porch drinking a beer. Um, so there's something really, really nice about being like, oh yeah, I can just go climb thousand foot wall, um, just like, just whatever. Um, and uh, I really, really miss that uh, being here in the Wasatch because there's not quite, like, there's tall things, but it's not quite the same as like a steep face, you know? Um, and so, you know, I spent, I mean, I think I was looking back at my log uh, a while ago, and, like the year like 2013 to 2014, like I didn't climb a single pitch route like at all, unless I was working, everything was multi-pitch. I just like, it's like always a white side or looking glass or these, you know, these relatively large formations nearby. Um, and so when we came here, uh, you know, there's plenty of long Alpine stuff, but just not sort of sustained and Notch Peak is, is sustained. It's big, it's out there. Um, and it's, you know, it's the second, it's tied for second biggest face in the contiguous US, right? Like the biggest thing is El Cap. And then after that, you've either got the painted buttress of the, uh, uh, the Black Canyon of the Gunnison or Notch Peak. They're both 2,200 feet tall, give or take. Um, so it just depends on like which geographer or geologist you trust the most about like whose measurements closest for the total height of the wall. But they're basically equivalent, right? So there's like El Cap, those two things, and uh, and then Half Dome's after that. So, you know, second biggest thing in the country is like a three and a half hour drive from my house, which is not like a thing I can do on a Saturday. Um, you know, um, <laughs> like I can certainly, you know, take a little three day trip and like head out there and, you know, um, blast up the thing and climb that stuff. And there's also like no one else there cause you're in the middle of nowhere. It's in the West desert, but there's not, it's not near anything in particular. You know, Delta is the biggest thing and it's 2000 people in that town. Um, and it's also limestone and chassis. Uh, if we're being honest, um, and so so that uh, also maybe helps fight the crowds a little bit, which which appeals to me in a in a certain way. Totally. What type of limestone is it up there? It's 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 limestone of its many varieties, and there's this wonderfully wonderfully chossy white band of rock that's uh, I think it's dolomite and probably some just a friggin' chalk in there. It's super super not great. You read all the trip reports, like there's you know there's only like a half dozen. I guess it's probably like 10 routes on the whole mountain now or something. Um, but you can read like the earliest trip reports and like, oh yeah, the only time we had to aid climb was through this hundred foot band of white, terrible rock. And it was a three where we just hammered the piton straight in or something. And you're like, oh, that sounds horrific. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, so there's, there's this one band, uh, right off the sort of the midway ledge. That's just all right. Um, so ideally, you know, when I, when I, when I've been, new routing up there it's like yeah we go through that band and the the place where it's the shortest i mean kind of like in the black canyon where you're climbing through the pegmatite right like that's that's the bad rock so you just like let's just make sure that the belay is before and after the bad rock and it's fine um but i mean there are, like I, I do love the, love the place there's definitely some higher quality roots roots there and higher quality rock like the stuff that gets a lot of traffic like the classics are pretty cleaned up like there's not it's not it's not incredibly sketchy but it's it's as sketchy as you make it, I suppose. Um, it's it's like going to climb like escape artist or comic relief in the black, right? Versus going to climb the hallucinogen wall. Um, you know, like if you're on, if you're on a trade route, ah, the rock's pretty good. It's all pretty much been cleaned up. And if you're on not a trade route or you're new routing, then then things get a little more interesting. Yeah, I mean, trade route is so relative to the area, though. Like, right, a trade route if you've never been to the black is different than a trade route 
uh, at a single pitch spot like Ninth Street. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely fair. Um, I think if you're like looking sort of, you know, globally, worldwide, like mega classics, right? Then like the allure of Notch Peak is that it's a large face. You can climb it continuously. You can free climb the whole thing, um, and uh, and that's that's what you're there for, right? Um, it's you know, like if you want to go climb El Cap, like unless you climb into the 513 range, you're not going to free the whole thing. Um, and so there, there is something really appealing about like being able to climb something quite large and also free it the whole way. Um, but that comes with, you know, trade-offs. Like, so Western Hardman is probably the like highest traffic route at Notch Peak. And like of the 12 pitches on the route, there's a small amount of shenanigans and probably three pretty nice pitches. And there's like nine pitches that are fine. They're not bad, but they're just like, eh, they're climbing, you know? Sure. So goes really, really long routes, right? You're going to run into that. But I kind of want to turn the uh, lens back onto your professional background and go into a little bit of like where you've worked over the last few years. I know it's not always like our most favorite thing to talk about just because it's so dry, but I think it's relevant to your history. Uh, yeah, I've worked a few places. So um, I work at Weber State University as uh, my full-time work right now. Um, and then I still uh, guide on the side a bit. So sometimes through the Certified Guides Cooperative, lately a lot through Red River Adventures. Um, occasionally I travel around to places to go go work. Uh, you know, like the I mean, like the programs we're doing with Mountain Bureau in a couple weeks. Um, and when I was in North Carolina, uh, so I worked uh, a lot of places at once. So I worked at Fox Mountain Guides. I worked in North Carolina Hour Bound. Um, I taught some classes at Western Carolina University. Uh, and then I also guided for uh, for myself for a while through a company I started called Peregrine Climbing Guides, um, and since have since sold that to, sold that to the lead guide, and then he ran that for a bit, and I think it shuttered. I don't know, probably three or four years ago, but um, yeah. So kind of did did all the things. Yeah, pretty varied, uh, pretty varied background, and worked at universities, owned guide services, worked for the co-op. So I mean, kind of have a a little bit of a 360 of, of guiding instructing and um yeah i just want to take the opportunity to thank you for sharing that experience with everyone on the podcast today and um, i'll throw a link to your website and some of your uh, papers so people can go check those out and uh yeah they can find out more about you there um we'll kind of pitch our smith rock rocktober uh, coming up the rumor mill says we might have you and uh, ron funderburk out so looking forward to that and uh, that'll be posted on our website and the social medias as that keeps coming but um, thanks again derek so much for coming on the show really appreciate it for sure appreciate you having me Boom. We did another one, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to the end here. And as always, the music is graciously provided by DJ Mantis and the Black Swedes. If you do want more info about Derek, head over to our blog post from this podcast on our website, mountainbureau.com. Or if you want to go get a guided trip, receive instruction, learn more about our winter programming and our international offerings, head on over. Also, like us on all the socials. You know what to do from there. And otherwise, we'll see you on the next one this summer. Biggest love, y'all. Cheers. Cheers.